How do I get in? I mean, that's a question we sometimes ask ourselves, especially when we find ourselves going someplace we've never been before. And of course, there are multiple answers to the question, how do I get in? The most obvious one being the front door. But sometimes it's a little more involved than merely finding the front door. Sometimes a ticket is required for access to an event. And sometimes, even still, it's not a matter of merely buying a ticket. I've been trying and hoping for master's tickets for years, and I still have not gotten them. And the reason I've not gotten them is because I do not know the right people. So sometimes it's not just about getting in with money. Sometimes it's getting in by who you know. Their clout becomes your access to getting into an event. They vouch for you and you get in as a result. But frankly, we do have to admit that sometimes getting into something or someplace is a matter of money. After all, if I had enough money, I wouldn't be signing up for the lottery for master's tickets. I would simply join the club. I would buy my way into the golf course and not only attend the tournament every year, but play the golf course when I wanted to. Money can buy you a lot of things. Money can purchase most anything you want and get you into most any place you want to go with one big exception. And that is the exception that we are talking about this morning. In our continued study of Mark's gospel, we've come to a pivotal question. How does one enter the kingdom of God? How do we inherit eternal life? And those terms are used interchangeably here. We might call it salvation. What must I do to be saved? How is a person saved? Well, for many of us, that sounds like a rather straightforward question with a relatively easy answer. But the truth is, the answers given to that question are often varied and wrong, even within the evangelical church. Or we might actually have the right answer, but at the same time not really understand it and therefore live totally different from it. Most people, when asked that question, how do you inherit the kingdom of God? How are you saved? Most people will answer with some sort of works reply. Follow the commandments. Do the best you can. Try hard or other similar responses. Still others of us would recognize that those are not the right answers, and we might say the right answer. We know that we're not saved by works. We are saved by the grace of God through faith. We could quote Paul's terminology there. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And yet while having the right answer, we might not totally understand it. And so when we read this text, we are going to see two encounters with Jesus. As you know, we are on the way with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. He has started that trek to the capital for what will be his last time. And along the way, he is going to have these two encounters that tell us about kingdom entrance. Now, before you decide, I don't need to listen to this or hear these scriptures because I already know the answer and I'm already saved... I want to encourage you to pay attention because, number one, you might have the wrong answer. Or number two, you might have the right answer and you might be used in the future to point someone to the right way. And so we all need to heed this. 
Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus, looking around, and said to his disciples, How difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were amazed at his word. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Two stories, two encounters, both tell us something about what it means to enter into the kingdom of God. In our first story, the shorter story, it is only four verses long, we find that in order to be in the kingdom, we must receive it like a child. This is now the second story where children are the center of attention, and yet I remind you that children were not the center of attention in the first century. In fact, in some sense, they were viewed as a liability. Until they grew old enough to contribute to the family and to society, they were seen as a liability. They were simply not important members of society. And so this is yet another example of Jesus treating the fringes of society much differently and much better than others did. And while their treatment of children is hard for us to imagine, especially in a world where we often go to the opposite extreme. And by that I mean that children nowadays are often coddled and pampered and made to be the center of attention by their parents and grandparents, something those children are more than willing to accept. But we also have to acknowledge another tragic side of this whole discussion, and that is our own poor treatment of children. Whether that comes as a society in the form of neglect, abuse, or abortion, our nation has a far from perfect record when it comes to this subject. So on both sides of the spectrum, 
We have something to learn from Jesus about the treatment of those who are vulnerable and how that pictures our own entrance into the kingdom of God. Now, we do not know exactly who is bringing these children. It's a masculine plural uh, word there, which suggests that it is both the fathers and the mothers. And they were both bringing the children to Jesus so that He might physically touch them and bless them. We have seen throughout our discussion of Jesus' public ministry how often physical touch is involved and how often that is a sign of His love and connection with people. In fact, those of you who are familiar with the five love languages know that physical touch is still one of the five. Blessings in the Bible are often common as well, though not associated with a father blessing his children like we see here. It's usually associated with a father blessing his children at the end of life. We see it multiple times, most notably in Jacob blessing his 12 sons. At the end of his life, he speaks to each of the 12 sons not only blessing them in the future, but predicting what that future is going to be as they will lead the 12 tribes of Israel. But here it's not a formal thing. It's much more informal where these parents are bringing their children to Jesus so that He might touch and bless them. And yet, the disciples are preventing them from doing so. We are not told exactly why they are preventing, but we can certainly wager a guess Presumably, they believe Jesus has more important things to do with His time than deal with blessing children. After all, He is a busy man with plenty of ministry to fulfill, and since these children are on the lower rung of society, He is wasting His time here. And once again, we find that the disciples' attitude is much more akin to the culture than it is to Christ. They should have known by now that Jesus is going to treat these vulnerable members of society different than society itself does, and yet they don't, and that continues to be a constant battle for us to face. Is our attitude in line with the culture, or is it in line with Christ? But Jesus is not happy about their approach. In fact, He says here in the text, the text says of Him, I should say, that He became indignant This is the only time in the Gospels that this word is used in reference to Jesus. And it means that he's mad and that he's about to do something about his anger. He's not just going to stew in his anger as we often do. He is going to express his anger, vent it. Although we do need to understand that this is not a sinful kind of anger. There are two different kinds of anger. There is righteous anger, which we see here. Anger at his disciples because they were actually preventing people from coming to him, the exact opposite of what his ministry was about. And then, of course, what our anger most often is, is sinful anger. From this public rebuke, then, Jesus draws a comparison. He uses this story to tell us something about entrance into the kingdom of God, how we must receive the kingdom. Now, we might be tempted to major on the picture here of Jesus comforting and blessing young children. And we might learn a lesson from this episode that Jesus does find children to be important in His ministry, and therefore we should as well. And I'm grateful that there are many, many people in this church who do find the blessing of children to be an abundant part of their ministry. But the ultimate lesson to be learned from this encounter is something about the kingdom of God and how we must receive it, which means we have to find out the point of comparison. 
What is it about a child that shows us what it means to receive the kingdom? Well, some would say that it must be some virtue that children have. And we might think of a virtue like innocence. How often do we say things like that, that children are so innocent? Though it is not biblical, it's not true. Children are not innocent. They are born with a sin nature as we all are, and therefore they are not innocent. So that is not what we are looking for here. Some might say some other virtue, like, um, like purity perhaps, or their sweetness. These are likely infants here because Jesus does take them into their laps, and so maybe it's their, their sweetness. And yet we probably know some children for whom that word does not apply. So it's not a virtue that we're looking for. I think what we need to understand, it is how they come to Jesus that is the point of comparison. They come to Jesus small. They come to Jesus powerless. They have nothing to bring to Jesus because they are helpless. They have no credit on their side of the ledger for works that they have done. They have no clout that they are bringing with them. And they certainly have no claims on the kingdom of God. They have done nothing to gain entrance on their own. Rather, they have come to Jesus empty-handed and filled with trust. You know that children, by and large, are naturally trusting. Unless someone has done something to damage that trust, they are naturally willing to trust an adult and willing to receive from an adult anything that adult offers them. You don't usually have to beg a child to take something from you. They willingly receive it from a trusted adult which is why we actually have to teach them the opposite. We have to teach them not to take things from strangers or not to get in cars with strangers because they are trusting. We often want children to act more like an adult or we chastise an adult for acting like a child. But here is a case where all of us need some childlike qualities because if we are going to come to Christ, we must come helpless, we must come powerless, Otherwise, we will not receive the kingdom of God with trust and dependence like a child. That is the way we must come and receive the kingdom. It is the only way to receive the kingdom, which makes this a very important comparison. Kingdom reception, kingdom entrance, means receiving it like a child. Well, our second encounter takes up much more space and teaches us something else about the kingdom of God. Not only do we receive it like a child, but we enter it like the poor. This is the story of the rich young ruler. That is the title we often give it uh, to this story, though it is a composite title. By that I mean Mark doesn't give us all of that detail. Mark tells us that he's rich, but it is Matthew that tells us that he was young, and it is Luke that tells us that he was a ruler. So we put all three of the synoptic gospels together, and we come up with this title of the rich young ruler. There could hardly be a bigger gap between this man and what he brings to his encounter with Jesus than what we've just seen in these unnamed children. Here is a man with power. He is a man with influence. He is a man of affluence. And yet he comes to Jesus, and it is he who is told that he is lacking something when it comes to the kingdom of God. What he does not lack is enthusiasm. What he does not lack is desire. He runs up to Jesus telling us how excited he is to see him and to speak to him. And then he kneels down in front of Jesus showing us his regard and respect for him as does the initial address. 
Has he heard Jesus teach before? We don't know. But he certainly does appear to know more than most people do about Jesus. He calls him good teacher, which really does not strike us as odd, though in Jesus' time it certainly was odd. We do know that Jesus was a good teacher. We know, of course, that he was much, much more than that, but he is certainly not less. But in the initial answer, Jesus informs us as to why this was odd at the time. Only God was considered good. They did not call people good because they believed only God was ultimately good, and therefore to use that term of someone else might border on blasphemy. And so they didn't use it, which is a good reminder for us, helping us to answer one of the more difficult questions in the Christian life, a question that we ask oftentimes, why do bad things happen to good people? And when we ask that question, we come to understand from this text that we are simply asking the wrong question. There are no truly good people. Only God is ultimately good. Well, Jesus does challenge him on this by reminding him that only God is good. Is this a veiled attempt at proclaiming his deity? Perhaps. But it's certainly not a disclaimer that Jesus is somehow not good and is therefore somehow sinful. We know he's not that. But then comes the question that is at the center of this encounter and must be the question that all of us ask and hopefully rightly answer. You may not ask it in these terms. You may not even ask it consciously, but this is a question you must ask. Verse 17, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The way the question is posed by the man leads us to believe that he is expecting some kind of works answer. And indeed, I believe that is what he did expect. It was the prevalent view then, it continues to be the prevalent view now. Tell me what I must do in order to be saved. What must I avoid? What sins must I avoid? What good things must I do in order to be right with God? The general conclusion is that you have to try your best to accomplish what is in your ability to accomplish, and then God will be satisfied. As long as you try your hardest... God will be satisfied and you will have eternal life. That is the general answer. But Jesus' answer tells us that he is indeed expecting a works answer, and Jesus answers with works. He says, keep the commandments. And he gives him six commandments, five of which clearly come from the Ten Commandments. So he lists five of the Ten Commandments, all of them being in the latter portion of the Ten Commandments, and all of them dealing with our relationships with one another. That is how we treat other people. There is one that is actually not one of the Ten Commandments. It is the word, do not defraud. This might be a more specific way of talking about coveting, which is one of the Ten Commandments, or it might be a special case for this man, because it was often the case that the rich were in part rich because they had defrauded the poor. But the man's answer takes us a bit by surprise. After Jesus gives him these six commands, he says, I have kept all of these from my youth. That's a phrase that refers back to when he was 13 years old at his bar mitzvah. Bar mitzvah means son of commandment. And so when a young Jewish boy turned 13, they would have a bar mitzvah And that was the time that he was now deemed to be an adult, and more specifically, he was now responsible for the keeping of the commandments of God. He was at an age where it was now time for him to fulfill the law. 
And this man says, I've done that. And we are, of course, quick to add that there is no way this man has perfectly kept the law since all are sinners and all fall short. But while that is true, it doesn't necessarily mean that he was being hypocritical or proud. I remind you that Paul himself said of his relationship with God prior to his Damascus Road experience, he said, in regards to the law, I was blameless. That is, these two men are both claiming that they have successfully fulfilled the law in these particular regards. Now, I do acknowledge that Paul later learned differently, so that later he could say he was the chief of sinners. But we also must understand that this man apparently did not know what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus expanded the law. He expanded the the definition of what it meant to fulfill the law by saying such things as, if you lust in your heart, then you have committed adultery. If you have anger or hatred in your heart, then you have committed murder. So this man is viewing it from an outside perspective, from a merely external observance of the law, and from that perspective, he was probably accurate. And therefore, he thought himself to be good enough to gain eternal life, just like so many people in our own day. People who say things like, I'm better than most, as if that is the standard, or I, as long as you do the best you can, God will be satisfied. And I think we know that this man was sincere and sincerely striving to keep the law from Jesus' reaction. Look again at verse 21. In verse 21, it says, Jesus looking at him, and that word looking is, a, is an intentional word. I mean, he's not just glancing, he is, he is gazing at him. But then notice what it says right after that, he loved him. Again, that does not strike us as odd because we are well-versed in the doctrine of God's love for us. But this is the only time in Mark's gospel that it is said specifically that Jesus loved someone. And the ones he's loving here is the only individual in Mark's gospel who hears the gospel and walks away not responding. Now, we know the crowds did that, but here's an individual. The only time an individual is told the gospel what he needs to do in order to be saved, and he walks away rejecting it, and yet Jesus loved him. That reminds us that God does, in fact, love those who are not saved. God does love those who reject His plan of salvation. And if God loves them, then we should too. And we should continue to share the gospel with them. Jesus, of course, is not done. He knows the man's heart even as He does our own. And so now He gets to the heart of the issue. And the heart of the issue is the man's idolatry, specifically in regards to wealth or money or riches. And so he tells him to sell it all, give it to the poor, and come back and follow him. This man who had said, I have kept all of these commandments from my youth, had not kept commandment number one, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And yet this man had idolatry in his life. It was the idol of riches. Now, there are multiple things that need to be said concerning here our relationship with money or possessions. First of all, money was seen then and is often seen today as a blessing from God. The idea that money could actually hinder someone from entrance into the kingdom was a foreign concept. After all, the idea was that a life well lived was blessed by God with financial rewards. 
And I'm sure you can readily identify how common that thought continues to be today. Or even the opposite. Why would God take money away from me when I'm trying my best to serve Him? On the other hand, we also need to acknowledge that poverty is not to be seen as a blessing from God either. It is true that we often go from one extreme to the, to the other. And so there have been times in church history where money was deemed to be evil, rejected as such, and vows of poverty were taken as if merely being poor would make us more like God. But neither wealth nor poverty are really the issue. The issue here is an issue of the heart, as it so often is. So Jesus is not condemning wealth, neither is He commending poverty. Rather, He is acknowledging that there is something in this man's life that is a much greater priority for him than his relationship is with God. Though He's asking the right question, the reality is there is something more important in his life. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, you must sell everything, give it to the poor, and come follow me. Now, you do understand that this is case-specific. In other words, this is specifically for this man. This is not for all of us to follow. That's why my point is we enter like the poor, not we enter poor, which again speaks to the qualities uh, in our spiritual lives, not financial accounts. You remember Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We enter like the poor in that, again, we don't come with our money expecting that we can somehow purchase our way into heaven. And all of this sounds rather difficult, and if it does sound difficult to you, then you are accurately following along. Jesus twice acknowledged how difficult it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven which, by the way, we are all very well-versed at denying the supplies to us. We would say, yes, but I'm not rich. I mean, there are many more Americans who have much more than I do. And while that might be true from a world's standpoint, most of us are indeed rich. So we do have to be on guard against the temptations and warnings that we see here because wealth can bring with it a sense of false security. If my security is in my savings account, then there is no need for me to really trust Christ or to desire to trust Christ. That is why wealth can be such a barrier to salvation, because it breeds pride and self-sufficiency and does not lead to humility and trust in Christ. And so we may not be among the wealthiest of Americans. We can certainly find other people that have more than we have, but we are among the wealthiest in the world so we must heed this warning. So how hard is it for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus answers with a proverbial statement, one you are no doubt familiar with. It is easier, he says, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. You remember this because it is a memorable saying. The camel was the largest animal in Palestine, and the eye of a needle, the smallest of openings. And yes, I did ride a camel when we were in Israel. Several of us did, though it's not nearly as glamorous as it might seem because we actually just rode it across a gas station parking lot. That's the only thing they would let us do. We didn't go off in the desert. Well, some have tried to soften this saying by changing the word. There is one letter difference in the word rope and camel. So some have said, well, the word is supposed to be rope which doesn't solve the problem because a rope's hard to go through the eye of a needle as well, and there is no evidence that that's what the word should be. 
Others have said what the real thing he's referring to here is a small city gate in Jerusalem that camels could only go through by getting on their knees. But there is no evidence for that until the ninth century, way after this saying was given. So it is better to leave it as it is, a proverbial saying that expresses impossibility. That is certainly how the disciples heard it. Look at verse 26. Their reaction is, who then can be saved? I mean, if it's that hard for a rich man, and again, I remind you that the rich were deemed to be rich because they were blessed by God. So they were seen to have an advantage. And now Jesus is saying it's almost impossible for them to be saved. And if it's impossible for the rich to be saved, then what about the rest of us? Who then can be saved? Well, we're talking again about entrance into the kingdom of God, and now it appears that the doors are shut. They are locked and they are chained. No one can get through. And that is partially true. No one by their own effort, no one based on their achievement, no one through their investments can enter into the kingdom of God. Humanly speaking, this is indeed impossible. Not just for the rich, it is impossible for everyone. But divinely speaking, it is possible for anyone. With God, all things are possible, meaning God can save anybody. And since it is God who does the saving, we cannot save ourselves. Therefore, it is possible for any of us. That is why we must receive the kingdom like a child and enter like the poor. Because if we've come thinking we have anything to offer, anything to contribute to our own salvation, then we've not understood the supernatural nature of salvation. It is a work of God from start to finish, and thus all human effort is futile and even fatal. We must receive it like a child. We must enter like the poor. And having done those two things, then we can enjoy it like family. The remainder of this passage, Peter, as we've often seen, acts as a spokesperson for the group. He now has a question of Jesus, though it is not formed in the, in the form of a question. He says, Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. We have done what this rich man refused to do. You asked him to get rid of everything and come follow me. He refused to do it and goes away sad. Some say that's the saddest verse in all of the Bible. But now Peter says, but we've done it. That's exactly what we've done. So what's his question? What's in it for us? What do we get? Because we've done what you asked this man to do. Peter is once again thinking about himself, though Jesus does not rebuke him here. If salvation is a work of God, something we bring nothing to, then what advantage is it for us to make sacrifices along the way? That's what he wants to know. He wants to know the same question you've asked yourself. If I'm supposed to suffer and I'm going to be persecuted, and did you notice that the word persecution is in this, in this section? If I'm going to suffer and if I'm going to be persecuted, if I'm going to forsake and give up things, then we ask the question, what's in it for us? What is God going to give me in return? And Jesus answers that. Is it worth following Jesus? Well, we've seen multiple times, as we do so here, that discipleship is demanding and costly. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. Jesus said, you must be willing to leave family and friends. He must be the first priority in your life, or you are no disciple at all. So what's in it for us? Verse 30, he tells us. 
In response, we get this wonderful promise that it is indeed worth following Christ. What He gives is far more than anything we might ever give up. The blessings far exceed the sacrifices. And notice that it is both in this life and in the life to come. This is not about, hey, one day you're going to have eternity and then all of that will not compare to what you gave up. And while that is true, Jesus says not only in eternity but in this life as well. Now, this is not a health and wealth theology. Give up your house for the gospel and you'll get more houses in return, including one at the lake and one at the beach. That is not what Jesus is promising here. But he does promise whatever we've given up for the gospel and for following him, he will multiply the blessings exceedingly. Certainly we know that the family of God is more than capable of replacing an immediate family that one might lose by professing faith in Christ. And then, of course, it does go on to say eternal life, something that far surpasses anything that this world has to offer. What God gives is always far better than anything that might be taken away or lost. And of course, first and foremost, this includes Himself. He is our greatest possession, and the relationship we have with Him in the kingdom of God is the greatest priority. So how can I enter the kingdom of God? What must I do to be saved? How do I inherit eternal life? That is the question that all of us must ponder and answer. But just because you think about it and come to some conclusion doesn't necessarily mean that you are right. There are plenty of wrong answers floating around to this most important question. So here Jesus says that we must come empty-handed. We must come humble. We must come trusting like a child. We must come completely with no one or nothing else taking priority in our lives. We've seen the danger of wealth and riches keeping us from Christ in this story of the rich young ruler, but that's just one example. Anything or anyone can be an idol that is more important to us than a relationship with Christ and therefore block our entrance into the kingdom. And that is not a good trade. The treasures of Christ far surpass anything that you leave behind. Paul writes, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. You can indeed be rich, rich in the things that matter, rich in a relationship with God. Being spiritually rich with Christ is far better than being materially rich without him. And so I'm asking you this morning, have you considered what it takes to enter into the kingdom of God? Or in more southern terminology, have you been saved? And if not, what are you holding on to that's keeping you from making this commitment? What is it that you're afraid you're going to give up? And I trust you've seen in this text that whatever you give up doesn't compare to what Christ gives you in return, both in this life and in the life to come. Let's pray.